We are recording this podcast on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We wish to pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend our respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who may be listening. Hi everybody, I'm Priscilla. And I'm Elise. Welcome to Novel Feelings, where we discuss representations of mental health issues in fiction novels. Are we back? Kind of. <laughs> well, look, um, those of you who keep an eye on the podcast feed may have noticed that we were back a couple of weeks ago with our interview with a lovely Graham Simsium. And we're back again with another interview today. <laughs> yes. Um, maybe this is a pattern. Maybe it's not. You just have to <laughs> stay subscribed to find out. <laughs> yeah, look, we're not, we're not saying, oh, we're an interview podcast now, but we... If an opportunity comes up to interview an author and we've got the time, we're going to jump on it um, because we really enjoy these conversations and, yeah, they're they're a lot of fun and really interesting and insightful, so why not? (laughs) Absolutely. Well, today we are interviewing Miranda Luby. Miranda is an author, journalist and copywriter living on Victoria's surf coast. Her journalism appears in publications such as National Geographic, BBC Travel, The Sunday Age, and The New York Post. Her short fiction has been published by Bloomsbury and Margaret River Press and has been shortlisted for the Commonwealth Prize. And her debut text prize shortlisted young adult novel, Sadie Starr's Guide to Starting Over, is out in August 2022. And at the time of this episode coming out, should be released to the public. So that is what we're talking about today, Sadie Starr's Guide to Starting Over. Yeah, so what is this book about? So, Sadie Starr is obsessed with starting over. A new year, a new diet, a new social media identity. Anything that gives her a chance to be a better version of herself. So, when her dad's job moves the family interstate, Sadie's excited for a fresh start. It's also the perfect excuse to leave behind the mess she's made with her best friend and secret crush, Daniel. But... At her new school, life gets complicated fast. Yep. So (laughs) she meets glamorous Alexa and her pink-badged girl gang on a mission to support women, and outcast Jack, who the girls say has been stalking fellow student Loz. But Loz has a different story, one that changes everything. And Sadie's torn. She wants to be popular. She wants to keep Loz's secret. She wants to fix everything, but she'll have to make choices. And the wrong ones could throw her perfect new life into complete chaos. I feel like this is an appropriate time to say dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Maybe we need to add that as a soundbite at some stage. Okay, insert soundbite here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Before we get started on our conversation with Miranda... Just a reminder that we are trained psychologists, but this podcast should not be taken as direct therapeutic advice. Please consult a professional for more specific and tailored advice. The first half of this interview is spoiler-free, but the second half contains spoilers for Sadie Star as we dig into the mental health content and what happens in the second half of the book. Also, we'll just flag that this interview has been edited for length. And a couple of content notes. So today we're talking about topics such as perfectionism and black and white thinking, disordered eating, specifically binge eating, body image concerns, dietary restriction and exercise, OCD, bullying, and toxic feminism and social activism. Let's get started with our interview with the lovely Miranda. Miranda. 
Well, welcome, Miranda. Thank you so much for joining us on this very special episode. How does it feel to be debuting your novel? Yeah, so honestly, it's um, it's a real mix of emotions, as you might imagine. It's it's definitely exciting. I'm really proud of myself for having sort of achieved this dream that I'd held for a long time, um, and sort of not giving up on it. Um, you know, I've had some really beautiful feedback from early readers about how they've connected with Sadie's story, so that's made this time really special. Uh, but it's also really nerve wracking. You know, you feel very, very vulnerable putting your work out into the world. That can be a real challenge, but that's just part of it. There's no escaping that. So yeah, it's a mix of feelings, but it's mostly good. Absolutely an achievement. Elise and I have dabbled in writing in the past and neither <laughs> of us has managed to finish anything. So super impressed. You know, you've gotten this far. Thank you. So why did you decide to focus on a character experiencing perfectionism or all or nothing thinking? Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of us know that perfectionism is really common. You know, almost every person I've spoken to about this book says that they feel like they'd be able to relate to Sadie, you know, or they would have as a teenager. You know, this is a character who she wants her school marks to be perfect and her diet and her exercise and weight to sort of fit into the idea of what they should be in inverted commas. And, you know, she wants the representation of herself on social media to be perfectly curated and, and all that sort of thing. And, you know, I think so many of us, we understand that side of perfectionist thinking. Um, but what I don't think is as well understood or spoken about as much is sort of what happens when those ideals can't either be reached or maintained, which they inevitably can't for, you know, a perfectionist. And so, so for a lot of perfectionists and certainly for Sadie, it, it becomes a case of this all or nothing, you know, it's sort of one extreme or the other. And so, you know, when her marks aren't perfect, she just gives up on her schoolwork and stops trying altogether. Uh, and when she doesn't stick to her diet, you know, or misses a run, she binge eats to the point of feeling sick. You know, it's these extremes. And I think, you know, for many people and for years this was the case for me, I didn't recognise those sorts of um, sort of self-destructive behaviours as stemming from perfectionism. You know, in fact, I think sometimes people think it's quite the opposite. They're, they're lazy or they're greedy or they have no self-control, which is just not true at all. Um, and I think, you know, the hardest part is the, you know, positive in inverted commas outcomes of perfectionism, great school or work achievements or weight loss or amazing organisational skills, you know, these things are so praised in our mm -hmm. culture. Mm -hmm. And the negative, in inverted commas, outcomes of, you know, perfectionism, this procrastination or binge eating or, you know, giving up in some way, they're seen as shameful and something that needs to be fixed or changed or stopped. I wanted to represent the full spectrum of how perfectionist thinking can play itself out, um, you know, so that readers can maybe recognise some of those things in themselves and give themselves a bit of a break. And also having a character with this all or nothing thinking pattern gave me an opportunity to explore uh, the way this kind of thinking plays out in our social discourse, um, particularly online. So there's this sort of feminist girl gang at Sadie's school that wear these pink women support badges and they have um, they have a pretty black and white approach to their activism. You're sort of either with them or you're against them, you're, you know, endorsing their opinion or you're called problematic. And... Um, you know, so I wanted to explore how to find more nuance in our thinking, you know, not just personally with the character of Sadie, but also sort of in our social discourse, which is, you know, the, the main part of the plot at the school as well. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of young readers will be able to relate to a lot of the 
thought patterns and spirals in particular that Sadie is going through throughout the book and just how those things really build over time as well. A lot of the, I suppose, expectations we set for ourselves can seem quite healthy and goal-oriented initially, but it's so easy for them to kind of blow out of proportion and become really extreme and unhealthy like we see for Sadie as the novel progresses. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, that swinging back and forth, um, you know, is common, and it and it can start quite small. And but for Sadie, it becomes really extreme. Um, and you know, when when it's not dealt with at, in a holistic way, you know, and she's just trying to to fix the side of her that she thinks is the problematic one, it only makes things worse. I thought it was funny, less interesting that when was it Loss who said. I've noticed you have perfectionist tendencies and Sadie's mm. inner monologue was like, well, I'm not a perfectionist because I'm not perfect. That's right. And that, you know, that's just a line straight from my thinking, but I'm sure many people relate to it. Mm. Um, you know, that's it. That And what I was saying before is it, it's often not that part of perfectionism isn't recognized. Yes, perfectionists mm. procrastinate, perfectionists binge eat, perfectionists get bad marks because they're perfectionists. It seems counterintuitive, but it's really, it's not. Mm. And it sounds like there's, um, you know, an element of yourself in Sadie as well. Can you expand on that? Like how much of Sadie is you? Yeah, I mean, she is, she does stem from my personal experience. She's definitely a fictional character and that, you know, the the things she experiences at school and, and that sort of thing, I, you know, I haven't experienced myself and there's certainly an element of needing to create a mm. plot. So having to make things worse for her than perhaps, you know, I have experienced myself. But um, certainly I'm a perfectionist, always have been, and coming to the realisation that some of my more destructive behaviours were part of that perfectionist thinking was, you know, a real journey for me into improving my mental health. And once I recognised that and thought that that would be, you know, a part of a great character's journey as well to help people going through the same thing. Um, I imagine that there's something almost therapeutic about writing in this sense and working through some of these experiences that Sadie's having yeah yeah absolutely it feels um it feels good to be able to get down on paper and experience like what Sadie is going through particularly with her eating habits in a way that might help people who have never experienced that understand why people behave in this way um so I guess that's that's part of you know everyone wants to be understood right um so you know, I guess that is part of it for me to say, you know, this is my experience of the world. Can you, can you see why, you know, can you see how this works for me and for people to go, yeah, I I understand that through your character. So certainly that, yeah, there's something therapeutic about that. I do hope that it will go into the hands of teenagers who need to hear that, but also maybe parents. (laughs) (laughs) I was really intrigued by the portrayal of Sadie's parents. I love the depiction of how their expectations of Sadie really contribute to her perfectionism. But they also clearly love her and never intended to hurt her in any way. And then there are these hints that their relationships with their own parents shape their habits and expectations of themselves and the ones that they place on Sadie. Um, Can you tell us a bit about how this family or just these parents came to be for you? So initially, I guess, um, you know, Sadie's parents came to me from a plot perspective. Um, You know, writers do try to make things difficult for their protagonists. That's part of 
creating a compelling book. Um, so I did ask myself, you know, what what type of parents would contribute to Sadie's perfectionism and and make it harder for her to ask them for help? You know, so that was sort of this image obsessed mom who you know, had apparently never overeaten so much as a block of chocolate in her life. That's how Sadie sort of pitches her. And a dad who's really focused on Sadie's school results as sort of a marker of her worth. At least that's how Sadie sees it. But I also know that people, you know, they generally mean well and that parents want the best for their children and, you know, they're not intentionally causing them harm. So the question was then, you know, why are these parents behaving like this? Um, And it became pretty obvious to me that they were a product of their own past experiences, you know, as we all are. So, you know, the the small insight we have into their own relationship with their parents, I think, allows us to see that even when, you know, her mum and dad, Sadie's mum and dad might be behaving in a way that we know is harmful and not helping her, we don't blame them. They're not intentionally doing the wrong thing. They're just imperfect, just like Sadie is, just like all the characters in the book and they're doing their best and in the end they're they're open to learning more about how to be you know supportive of their daughter's needs yeah and I think that willingness to grow and listen to Sadie is you know, one of the one of their strengths as parents I don't know if you um might might have seen me have a bit of a giggle when you mentioned before that as writers we have to create problems for the for the characters because I just had this thought of what if our characters just didn't have any problems it wouldn't be very interesting (laughs) would it (laughs) not a lot of um not a lot of narrative arc would be going on if that were were to be the case but yeah anyway I, I appreciate the um having the flawed environment around Sadie without it being sort of comically evil parents or the traditionally absent parents that we often see in young adult fiction. I did want to ask as well, uh, as we've touched on Sadie's, you know, descendants into what is unfortunately quite um, a significant amount of disordered eating as the book progresses, aligned with her perfectionism, the new diet, the increase in exercise and everything, we do see her start developing binge eating. And binge eating disorder is actually the most common eating disorder, but one that we rarely talk about. So I wanted to ask what led you to include this representation in Sadie Star? Yeah, so binge eating is something I struggle with personally. So that first and foremost is why I wanted to write about it. And, you know, therefore I know I know firsthand that it's not spoken about a lot. And there's a lot of shame and stigma associated with it. And, you know, the fact is that when it is spoken about, it's it's not discussed as generally, it's not discussed as a mental health issue, which it absolutely is when it reaches the point that it does for Sadie in the book. Um, it's more spoken about as a problem with self-control or, you know, a love of junk food and in inverted commas, um, which is just not an accurate framing of the issue. And it's framed that only leads to more self-criticism, you know, which will only make binge eating worse. So I I wanted to portray binge eating as a mental health issue in the book and just really sort of dig into the the reasons behind why Sadie was behaving in this way. And as you say, you know, binge eating is so common, the most common eating disorder in Australia. Uh, it's become increasingly common with teenagers and adults through the pandemic. And I just wanted anyone who reads the book who might be struggling with it to know that, you know, they're not alone to feel maybe a bit less stigma and shame around it, uh, to recognise that they might need to reach out for professional help. 
And, you know, just to represent that on the page, I haven't personally read any young adult fiction with binge eating. I'm sure it's out there. I can't say I have either. Yeah, I mean, no doubt it's out there. I haven't, you know, read everything. But, you know, the <laughs> fact that it's at least not very common, I thought it's it's worth putting on the page just um, because it is, it is so common in real life. Yeah, and I think, Elise, you and I were talking about how even less common is that link between perfectionism and binge eating in a book. That That's something that we haven't really come across before, though, again, it might be out there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. We were, we were sort of chatting about how the limited eating disorder related portrayals we have seen tend to focus a lot on uh, body image as being, and, you know, negative expectations around women's body image in particular and objectification and so on as being a key cause. Um, So it was really nice to see something that was looking at the other things that can contribute towards an eating disorder in this way. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because it makes me think about, you know, the idea of own voices, even in relation to something like the specifics of particular eating disorders. So, I mean, I, I believe that someone who hasn't experienced binge eating, I think that they can write about it if, if they've done the research. But, you know, interestingly, when I first started writing Sadie Star, she was anorexic, which is not something I have experience mm. with. But, you know, I, I was too uh, nervous and shameful to put binge eating on the page. And I'm so glad that I didn't write that experience because it's not one that I've had. And I think that I probably would have portrayed it in a, you know, in a fairly cliched way because, you know, I don't have that in-depth experience. Whereas, you know, Sadie, I understand her mind, I understand her motivations. And so, you know, the closer you've been to um, an experience, the more nuanced that character becomes. Um, And so, yeah, I guess it's a case of, you know, of telling the truth really in fiction. And I think that really comes across because there are moments in the book that I found hard to read, not in a bad mm. way, but it's just that the spirals and her the way Sadie thinks about herself and the way she, that all or nothing thinking, it feels really affecting to me, uh, that it's almost hard to get through. But I think in the same same sense, it also feels true to what I hear when I'm working with teenage girls at that age. I kind of had those moments of going like, oh, if you were sitting in front of me, I really wish I could just stop you right there and start to dig into the things that you're saying and thinking, which is one of the curses of reading a book as a psychologist at times. I bet. You've also mentioned the, how did you put it, the feminist girl gang in Sadie's (laughs) school who can be quite rigid in their definitions of what supporting women really means. So, yeah, things don't always go according to plan for these girls and there it that includes some pretty rough bullying or cancelling of people who don't fall in line I suppose with their definitions of what feminism looks like uh what messages about feminism or activism around social issues in general that you would like young readers to take away from this book yeah, so I think obviously the, you know, the story at Sadie's school, it does center around feminist activism. If there's a message that I would want young readers to take away, it's, it's probably around having a more nuanced approach to their thinking, you know, around social issues in, in general. So Alexa's sort of the, the character in the book, she's sort of the ringleader of the feminist girl gang. And she has very good intentions um, and a good heart, but she's someone who's sort of so set 
on her worldview that she sort of sees everything through the lens of her feminism, which I don't think is inherently bad, but it means that she sort of jumps to conclusions about people and situations that aren't necessarily true. And she also throws around a lot of commonly used phrases like calling people patriarchal or problematic. Um, There are some other characters that, yeah, they use the term cancelling and saying things like silence is violence. And they say these things perhaps without having had like a really good think about what these terms really mean, how they should be used instead of sort of appropriating them for their own benefit or to fit their worldview. So I'd say, you know, if, the, if there's a message, it's it's probably more around thinking for yourself, thinking critically, maybe asking questions about your political and social positions uh, and your motivations for them before, you know, saying something or doing something that's that's really more reactionary or maybe even performative than it is constructive or, or true. Yeah, I think we can all agree with that as <laughs> a pretty important message and yeah, I almost got the sense that perhaps some of the characters were, you know, repeating things that they might have heard on social media mm-hmm. or that other people at school had been saying and and so on, rather than sort of actually incorporating and thinking about it as their own personal view and what it means to them too. And I also did kind of appreciate the sense of us versus them that was happening a lot with with this feminist girl group at the school, mm. in particular with the pink badges. I thought that was a really interesting sort of physical demonstration of what, what this kind of feminism or social activism can look like. Yeah, that's right. I guess it sort of lends itself to that sort of group think. Um, and, you know, it's, it's tricky because I don't think wearing a pink badge is inherently bad either. I mean, we do, we wear symbols of the things that are important to us and that we're passionate about. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but it does, um, encourage that kind of, um, tribal behavior that's really natural to humans. And so I just think we have to be a little cautious with it. You know, Alexa, I find really fascinating because she starts off as a, typical mean girl almost in a way like a feminist mean Mm. girl (laughs) Um, because she would you know she espouse all these feminist values but then turn around and slut shame someone her best Mm. friend I really appreciated it because she didn't just stay that way and she learned um, to do better and acknowledge her faults but I also appreciate that there were girls who didn't do that and were perhaps participating in the pink badges for social climbing reasons more than genuine desires for feminism? Yeah, definitely. There is definitely some virtue signaling going on there, um, which is, <laughs> yeah. you know, enhanced by social media and that sort of thing. And I think, yeah, and that and that happens um, in the real world as well. And I think probably this has come, you know, this is fairly natural as well. You know, an environment's been created where, um, you know, social approval at the school comes from endorsing one opinion and and you know punishing those who disagree and if that's the environment that you're in you know your survival instincts say right well I'll wear a pink badge and I'll put the hashtags on my post and that's understandable it's very difficult to call out people who are doing something that um, maybe isn't ideal for what seems like the right reasons without looking like the bad guy yourself it's a challenging it's challenging for all of us and certainly for teenagers Mm. and we flagged social media as well as being quite an interesting character within the Mm. book overall I got the impression that the book was quite critical of social media at least how it's sort of being used in Sadie's 
world. Can you tell us about your personal views around social media? Yeah, so um, in the book, yeah, social media is used for a lot of virtue signaling um, and certainly bullying um, and something pretty awful plays out for Sadie on TikTok in the climax of the book and all these things do happen in real life um, but I do personally think that's just a part of what happens on social media. Uh, there's obviously, you know, incredible community to be found there. It's a wonderful creative outlet for teenagers, for all of us. So I don't think social media is inherently bad. I think it just reflects the real world. And in this story, it was only relevant to me to highlight where it was being used in a negative way. Having said that, though, I would, so there's a character in the book named Daniel, Sadie's best friend and secret crush, and he has a um anti-bullying forum or platform um, called Bullseye where people can sort of go for help and chat about their experiences and get advice from other teenagers and to me that's a type of social media which is obviously intended as a really positive space in the book so yeah and I think the other thing is you know for Sadie and for me on a personal level um, you know I find when my mental health isn't great it's not good to be on social media and you know when it is then social media doesn't really cause me as much harm. So, you know, I think for Sadie, who isn't in a great space in terms of her mental health, she has a challenging relationship with social media. And I think I think that's something that we all need to recognise, you know, cer- certainly social media has a lot of cons, but its use does reflect our own minds in a way. Um, and certainly for a perfectionist, you know, I can spend too much time trying to curate my presence online and think overthink it and it's just not healthy so I know you know for me it's a it's a it can be a trigger and it can also be a warning oh okay I'm I'm overthinking this you know I need to step away for a few days or whatever it is this is unrelated but I have to say I appreciate the friends to lovers <laughs> in this book there's not enough of it <laughs> Um, yeah, Elisa and I differ a bit on that. <laughs> oh, I'm enemies to lovers all the way. Oh, great. <laughs> Not in real life, only in books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One last question before we dive into the spoilery portion of this episode. Mm-hmm. Do you have any author or book recommendations to share with our listeners? Yes. So I recently read a book called The Centre of My Everything. Um, it's by Elaine Webster. Uh, she's an Australian author. Uh, it's a YA book, and it's just a really raw and honest novel. Um, it centers around teen binge drinking culture and gener- generational racism, but it's also a beautiful novel. It's about transcending our past and our pain to find sort of love and compassion. And it's it's just a great example of really, really truthful storytelling. Um, and it's an Australian novel, and she's a very talented author who's written many books, and I can't recommend it enough. And another great book, which is a writing craft book and sort of a memoir, and it's recently released by an author called Lee Kaufman, and it's called The Writer Laid Bare, uh, and it's about writing and living with emotional honesty, which, you know, clearly to me is quite important. And I think it's it's a great one. It just gives it gives readers permission to live and write with more truth. Uh, and it's really it's a really great read. Awesome. I will be adding those to the TBR as well. And listeners will make sure to include those in the show notes as well if you want to check them out. All right. Well, I think it's time to dive a little bit more into some of the things that happen in I guess the second half or latter third of the book. Um, So spoilers beware if you haven't read Sadie Star and you don't kind of want to know what happens at the end, now is the time to tune out. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Well, we've talked a bit about binge eating representation in this book. Um, Sadie's eating disorder isn't actually named in the book explicitly, though, of course, it's mentioned in the acknowledgments and author's note. The closest we get in the narrative was when Daniel tried to bring it up and Sadie cut him off. Was this an intentional choice? Yeah, it was intentional. Um, so I'm not a psychologist. I'm a writer. Um, and I, I do know that binge eating disorder is can be very difficult to diagnose. Uh, like a lot of mental health issues. And I, I didn't want to be misleading, you know, as if I was saying this is exactly how someone with this disorder behaves. Um, you know, for example, Sadie restricts her food a lot and diet a lot as well. And I know that that's not some people's experience with binge eating disorder. So, you know, to, to diagnose her in that way, um, I didn't want people to feel like, well, that's clearly not what I'm going through because that's not my experience. Therefore, perhaps I shouldn't, you know, label myself in that way. And I also didn't want, I didn't want people to think that they shouldn't get help just because they wouldn't be clinically diagnosed, you know, as having binge eating disorder. It's like someone who uh, maybe isn't diagnosed with an anxiety disorder, but still has very anxious feelings and thoughts. You know, I think no matter where you are on the spectrum of of anxious thoughts and feelings or, you know, disordered eating, if you think you need professional help, you know, you should never feel like, oh, I'm not, I'm not bad enough in inverted commas. I'm not, you know, as extreme as that. I don't think you need to think you should have a clinical diagnosis. If, if you think you need help, you should look for it. So yeah, I didn't, I guess I just didn't want to be too misleading to anyone reading by giving her a, a diagnosis. Mm. Yeah. It's an interesting point you raise about sort of whether it would be appropriate even to for her to receive that diagnosis because we we absolutely know that she is experiencing binge eating as the book progresses like I don't think there's any question in mind but whether or not her the the quote-unquote correct definition for her would be binge eating disorder or not I'm not quite sure because um in the sort of eating disorder space we talk a lot about um transdiagnostic model of eating disorders which sort of blurs the lines between the different diagnoses as the diagnoses are kind of, in my view, at least a little bit unhelpful at times, like the line between anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, and um, I think it's OSFED, the other specified feeding and eating disorder, is really quite, it is really quite blurry um, what sort of coincides with each of them. There are some key characteristics, but a lot of things that occur across multiple eating disorders and a lot of people might transition from 
one type of experience to another as well. So, for example, in Sadie's case, there are times where her exercising gets really intense and and quite extreme and almost compensatory for her her binge eating behaviors and times where she's definitely not getting enough calories in terms of how much she's eating as well like really quite significant under eating that's happening there too so yeah it's it's sort of realistic I think in terms of how um you know, a young a young person or any person really who might be going through this might be experiencing those changes in in symptoms and experiences over time. Yeah, that's right, and I think that leads to um, you know that other myth, perhaps myth that a lot of people might think, especially if they haven't um, experienced themselves, and they might hear the words binge eating or binge eating disorder, and just assume that a person experiencing that would be overweight. Mm. Um, and I intentionally didn't give Sadie like you know. I don't think we know her size in the book. She's sort of how you interpret her. But certainly, um, you know, I, I wouldn't consider her necessarily overweight. And so um, I think you know, that can be misleading for people as well um, because she does compensate in that way. And it, often, you know, it's harder for those people to ask for help because they're managing it in a way that's socially acceptable, which is, you know, looking a certain way. And a good reminder that you can't tell whether someone has an eating disorder by how they look too. That's right. Sort of expanding on that, I wanted to highlight some of my favorite lines from the book, which happen um, towards the end where Sadie's starting to get into a bit of a healthier mindset and starting to realize that she does need some professional support and needs needs to uproot what's happening for her, where she says, I'm starting to get the impression this is not going to be an episode of a makeover show where I ask for help and a three-minute montage later, I'm a new mentally healthy version of myself. Turns out reality TV is misleading. Who knew? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Expanding on that, uh, what do you think are some of the things that people often get wrong about mental health recovery, whether it's specific to eating disorder recovery or more in general? Yeah, so I think, you know, we wish and certainly perfectionists wish that um, mental health recovery was a linear process with no sort of steps backwards and in inverted commas and um, which is, you know, not often the case. I'm, you know, I'm guessing I only have personal experience, but, you know, mental health recovery I'm sure can be as complicated as, life itself and um you know it's actually probably the the bumps along the road of mental health recovery you know while they are of course very challenging they're the things that teach us you know the most and lead to further healing so you know it's all here I am doing this behavior again three years down the track after I you know started to seek help why am I doing that you know I hadn't realized this was a trigger for me, now I know. So setbacks aren't really setbacks. And I think, yeah, I think people um, can not realise how how long mental health recovery takes, but also the fact that it's okay to be in recovery for a long time. You know, actually there's this fantastic podcast by The Age, it's um, it's called Enough and it's recently recorded and and it's all interviews with teenagers experiencing mental health issues. And um, one of them is with teens experiencing eating disorders and one of them is with a girl with binge eating who is on her um, path to recovery, which she says this fantastic thing about now she, you know, when she has a negative experience, say she's stressed out or um, something like that, you know, binge eating is still one of the ways she uses to cope with that, but it used to be the only way. Now it's one of 20 ways, you know, and so one of them is going for a walk. One of them is having a bath. One of them is having to listen listen to nice music. And every 20th time she might binge eat. And that's okay. You know, she says 
there may never be a point in my life where I never do that again. And that, that can be what recovery looks like as well. You know, it doesn't have to be, oh, I'm fixed, I'm better. You know, and I thought that was a really great way of looking at it. It's a similar in the, in the book, one of the characters has a stutter and he sort of, he comes to the realisation that, um, you know, for him, he, he doesn't need to, you know, fix himself completely in inverted commas. He he can sort of use that um, as, a, as something that detects his emotions. So, you know, it only happens when he gets really upset, then he can recognise, you know, oh, I'm upset, I need to probably find a way to calm down or something like that. So, yeah, I think it's it's a very complicated road. Yeah, absolutely. About Daniel and how he said that the stutter is almost a warning sign now that he that he is upset. I feel like one of the things that we talk a lot in therapy is about recognizing what's happening in your body when you have different feelings mm-hmm. and using that as clues, I suppose, to what's going on internally. Did you consider depicting Sadie getting professional help within the book's timeline? So, for example, showing her having a therapy session with a psychologist? For me, I guess the most critical point in Sadie's journey was sort of getting her to the point where she's able to ask for help. Um, You know, I know this can be one of the hardest things to do, especially with something like binge eating and especially in her situation where her mother is at first embarrassed by that action and doesn't understand it at all. So for her to be able to admit to her mother out loud that she needed help is such a huge step for her. I thought that that, you know, and and then we we do know by the end of the book that she's going to get help. And, you know, that journey is going to be long and it's not going to be linear and it's going to be very Sadie specific. And it's just something that I I don't think necessarily needed depicting um, in the book. You know, we can imagine um, that, you know, now she's got enough support. She's got um, people who understand that she needs help um, and she's she's asked for that. She's looked for it. She's found it. And so, yeah, to me that just depicting her getting to that point of asking for it was that was her ending um, for us. And then, you know, she's got her, her new beginning beyond the book. It was really nice to see her getting to that mindset by the end of the book, of course. And I did want to ask as well, sort of, feeding into the storyline about the we keep saying feminist girl gang I feel like that's very flippant (laughs) but it is quite descriptive of of what's happening with the pink badge brigade at the school um but I did have another question about that storyline too um so as the story progresses we learn that Jack um Sadie's neighbor's stalking behavior is based in rumor only And it can be quite tricky to be representing a kind of uh, false accusation storyline considering the climate that we're in at the moment. Can I ask what motivated you to write Jack and Loz's story and how you decided to approach that? Yeah, it's a great great question. So as we talked about, you know, I wanted to write a book about the need for nuanced thinking. Um, And it's clear, you know, what I'm doing with that in terms of Sadie. Um, But I thought sort of you know, presenting the reader with a situation that maybe challenges a particular narrative that, you know, we're sometimes told not to challenge was a good vehicle for exploring that need for, you know, that more nuanced thinking. I think it's very difficult and uncomfortable to sort of face the fact that not everything fits into a neat catchphrase, um, such as believe all women. Um, you know, it's an uncomfortable thing to say and to admit, um, but we have to face that fact and find a way to work that fact into our worldview or 
some lives will be ruined. Jack goes through a lot in the book in the name of um, that catchphrase, believe all women. And in this particular situation, that doesn't work out so well, um, which is uncomfortable and unfortunate, but that's just the way that it is. And which sort of leads into the, the approach I took writing it, which was just to sort of tell one true story, you know, um, yes, it's fiction, but you know, I think this is a believable set of circumstances. This can happen. It does happen. You know, someone is falsely accused of something, um, and they're being, you know, um, they're suffering because of that accusation. And if that can happen and does happen, uh, then it shouldn't be controversial or problematic to portray it. And so far it hasn't been, you know, the response has been great to that part of the book. Um, you know, I think adults and teenagers know that humans are complicated, you know, and our stories are complicated and the situations we find ourselves in are complicated. And we just have to find a way to factor that truth in to our activism. You know, if we want to create lasting positive social change, we do have to think in a nuanced way. Um, otherwise, you know, some people will suffer for, we know what we think is, is the greater good. Yeah, that's a great point. This is not so much a question, but it just occurred, it just popped into my head. I wonder if part of, you know, why Jack went through everything that he went through was because both he and Loss were already outcasts in the school and whether the same scenario would have played out if it was another character such as Sam, who's quite a popular, conventionally attractive man, I suppose, young men, um, and whether a similar response or similar sort of um, pile on in the same way. Yes, yeah. thank you. Or would it would all be forgotten about after the next soccer win, you know? <laughs> that's right. Mm. I think it's a really interesting question and, and not one that's easy to answer. And I think, you know, for some of the characters, for Alexa, it, it would have been the same. You know, she does have these really good intentions. Um, mm. And then I think possibly for some of the other characters, um, it was because Jack was already an outcast um, and that was just, convenient for them mm -hmm. to have another reason to exclude him that was based on, um, you know, this faux virtue. So that fit into their, you know, their narrative and it benefited them, um, which I think that we, we can see happening. It is rare. I think I truly think most people have very good intentions. So, yeah, it is really interesting to ponder. And we haven't touched on yet Jack's experience of OCD as well and how that's portrayed on the page. I don't have a particular question in mind here either, but I just wanted to comment that it was nice to see another portrayal of OCD that isn't just about um, contamination-based OCD, which we know, of course, is is very common, but to sort of see, um, you know, his experience of OCD as well as the stigma within the school and how his experience and the way that manifests has sort of led to you know, being seen as the weird kid and the outcast and so on for something that is very much that at this time in his life anyway out of control or out of his control. Yeah. I, you know, I have a few people say, I just want to hug Jack through the page, <laughs> like, you know, and not to be condescending to him, but we do. He's going through so much, as much, if not more, you know, we'll no need to compare, but there's as Sadie and, um, yeah, he's having a really tough time and, and which is why I like, for me, I like the idea of Jack and Daniel connecting at the end. I can imagine them being really good friends and really supporting each other. You know, Daniel's further along the journey of self-acceptance um, than Jack is. And I think he really does need a friend 
who can show him, you know, the next steps and hope that he gets them. Yeah. And I think actually Jack's dad is a good counterpoint to Sadie's parents because he's, Jack's dad is very unsupportive. <laughs> I was going to say flippant. awful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I was avoiding <laughs> the word. Yeah. Um, but very, you know, in the face of a child who's clearly struggling, it seems like his only response is that you 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 need to control this. This is weird. And even like when Alexa and Sadie turned up to apologize, he was like, this is what you call bullying. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, it's such an interesting contrast to the way Sadie's parents responds, respond to her when she finally asks for help. Yeah. And I think, you know, like he, he's a jerk, right? But but still, you know, he is doing that for a reason. You know, everyone acts that way for a reason. I guess he's probably, he's confused, he's embarrassed, he he doesn't know what to do. You know, maybe he's tried to help his son before, but he has done it in an unhelpful way. And um, so, yeah, he himself, you know, not that every action can be justified and he, he you know, he's very unsupportive, but he, he's got his own issues clearly. Um, so, yeah, it's... Um, it's tough. So that's right. Sometimes it's not your parents you go to for help. It might be a new friend. Yeah. Really highlights the value of getting support from peers who know what it feels like to go through this stuff. I think, I think that's the end of the set of questions that we had planned for tonight. If it's okay, Miranda, I did want to ask as well, what's, what's next for you? What's on the cards, any new projects, works coming out or anything else? Yeah, so I, um, I'm working on another novel, which I'd sort of had started before Sadie. So just continuing to edit that. And I do hope to publish more books, but I am, you know, I'm also keen to say that I think it's important that, you know, we're such an achievement based culture and, you know, publishing a book is important to me, but I'm very conscious of not basing my self-worth on how many books I've published and how well they're received. So, you know, yes, I'm working on more books, but I think I, ju- I just want to write stories that I think can maybe make a bit of a difference and that are important to me. Um, so we'll see, you know, if I can do that some more, then that would be fantastic. Yeah, that's that's an awesome way to look at um, the writing and publishing journey. Best of luck with the second one. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was so great to chat. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for listening. And a big thank you again to Miranda Luby for donating her time to us today. Yeah, that was such a an excellent conversation. Yeah, really enjoyed it. And go and check out Sadie Star. It should be available wherever you get your books. Please remember to subscribe and follow us to keep up to date with us and to know when our new episodes are posted. Our website is novelfeelings.com and every now and again you will find a blog exclusive review that either one of us or both of us have written. So might want to check that out. If you would like to support the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can send us a message via our website or social media. So we're on Instagram, Twitter and Goodreads. Find us through at novel underscore feelings. So at the moment, we are most active on our Instagram. So if you are not following us yet, please do. do. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, we are still on Twitter a little bit as well, but we are really just focusing on Instagram content um, and, you know, continue keeping us in your feeds in case more interviews come out as well. You can also find my bookstagram at Paved With Books with an extra S at the time of recording. It is still alive. I love how we get an update every time we record <laughs> <Yeah>. about <laughs> the status of where the Paved With Books has risen from the grave like our podcast has. Yeah. <laughs> Or if it's in the ground and forgotten. (laughs) That's all for today, folks. Thank you so much. Tune in next time. Catch you around. Take care. Bye. Bye.